the volume. Hey, it's the sessions presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel. FanDuel has exclusive offers, boosts, and more all month long, baby. And when you win, you get paid real fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play, like the spread, money line, over-unders, team totals, player props, and so much more. Jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. Such a cool feature. And you can combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay to try out Same Game Parlay Plus. So download the FanDuel app today and start making every moment more. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 for Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Here we are on the sessions with Medusa, Alundra Blaze. How are you doing? You've got so much going on right now. Holy moly. Thank you for having me. You know, the last time I saw you, I think it was at the WWE, I believe. And you are good at what you do. I absolutely just thought the world of you and the ability of what you're able to do with the earpiece in your ear and people coming at you at 10 different directions. And of course, you know, trying to spit out things that are, you know, making sense, you know, um, that's a that's that's definitely talent. Yeah, that definitely would have been one of the last times I would have seen you would have been at WWE, um, I guess a couple of years ago. It's been a, probably when you came back to do the Rumble, maybe, or with the 24-7 championship, probably during that. There was that as well. And I think we were sitting at the front desk. It was JBL and myself, and he has the biggest crush on me. I'm just going to say <laughs> that. He, he tells everybody I have the crush on him. He is oh so full of himself. JBL, you know you have a crush on he me. He knows he has a crush. Yeah. He knows. <laughs> um, okay, so your new book is out. How exciting, called The Woman Who Would Be King. I actually love this title. Was it hard to come up with the title for your book? I felt like when I was doing my cookbook, I was like, I couldn't land on a title. It took me ages, but this is perfect. I love it. The title of the book, I, I had two others picked out and I was going back and forth, um, you know, what my title should be. And it it was sticking and I was happy with it, but I wasn't, you know, that feeling where it just doesn't, mm, 
you know, just captures you. I'm a type of person where I've always like, I wanted to be different, but with a statement and being a paver, as I call them, paving the way in so many things that, that um, I feel that if a woman can be a man, why can't we be a king? And so the title came from a great conversation from a great mutual friend and one of my best friends, Paul Heyman. Paul has been a dear friend way back in AWA days. So we're having this conversation. He's like, Deuce, what, what, what's your titles? And so before I could even really spit anything out, he's like, the woman who would be king. And I'm like, oh, my God. And it came from Paul. Leave it to Paul to title your book, of course, right? The guy is just a master uh, in so many different avenues. The fact that he named your book is great. He also wrote the 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 prologue for your book as well. Is that right? He wrote the forward uh, to the book, and I couldn't have uh, been more honored. Uh, we've shared so many things in our life uh, together, been through uh, this career, this wonderful career called pro wrestling. And even behind the scenes and, you know, in personal life and being friends and supporting each other. So for him to say yes to do that, it just, it meant the world. I was really, I wasn't even, you know, I just thought I was throwing it around. You know what I mean? You know, and it's, it's best not to expect things in this world or, you know, buy people or anything because you won't be let down otherwise, you know what I mean? And so I just, yeah, I just like, hey, it's a great title. Do you want to write the foreword? Like throwing it out there. And he's like, um, I would have been really disappointed if you didn't ask. So yeah, it was a it was a really, it was a great fit. What is your relationship with Paul like? I mean, you just said you guys go back to, you know, the AWA days. You guys have known each other for so long, worked in many different promotions together. What is the status of your guys' relationship? How often do you guys keep in touch and kind of lean on each other throughout your life? Well, I mean, there's texts, you know, there are phone calls, there's pictures and, you know, we can see each other in town. We're definitely getting together through, uh, for WrestleMania. And so um, there's stuff like that, bouncing things off of each other, life. Um, you know, you're pretty special when he gives you that call and you're invited to his daughter's bat mitzvah. Oh, so. that's a big one. That's a that really is big one. Huge. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So your book, why was now the time to write the book and put this together? You've lived such a, an incredible life and have done so many things. Why was now the moment to do the book? What else do you do during a pandemic except for have lots of sex <laughs> with your husband? <laughs> Amen. Yes. I mean, I did some other crazy things during the pandemic. I mean, I finally, <laughs> I finally, um, I always wanted to play the drums. And nay, I'm telling you, like I bought this, this drum set and it's setting up in my living room and during the pandemic. I just bought this damn drum set and boom, that's my hi-hat, by the way. And so, yeah, that was one of them. And then another was when ECW Press out of Canada, a great company, by the way, um, they worked for years and years uh, publishing books with uh, WWE. And they reached out and said, um, you want to write a book? <laughs> Nay, how do you put 40 years of entertainment in one book and and Monster Trucks? I know it's not it's not just a wrestling book. Like it's so much more than that into condense 
all of those stories and kind of pick and choose what's going to go in. I'm going to circle back to that in one second because the majority of this will be talking about the book. I want to go back to the drums. Why were the drums the instrument of choice that you wanted to play? I always find this funny because I feel like like I've always wanted to know how to play the guitar because I'm like, I feel like you can just kind of play the guitar and like maybe sing a little song with it. But with the drums, you're really in your own little world with that. No one just wants to like play me a song on the drums. How in the hell do you sit there in a room trying <laughs> to listen to what? music with drums? Here, put these put these headphones on while you listen, right? Or some earplugs or whatever. Yeah. My yeah. drums, because I've always been told I, you know, I... I beat to a different drum, basically, my whole life, my whole career, right? And drums are just, um, I always felt it was just a, like an extension of me, you know, and how I feel. And I just, it came naturally. And then, so how did I learn? I called, uh, you know, you know, the, she's an announcer, you know, Alicia. Alicia Taylor. Yes. Yeah, she's legit. So I hit her up, I text her, I said, girl. Let's get on FaceTime. Can you teach me how to play the drum? She's like, girl, I'll teach you oh anything. Oh, my God. That's so great. Yeah. So um, her, uh, her and uh, Mickey and I were just out to dinner a little while ago. It was so good seeing them. And uh, it was good to get together with them. But we tried to connect on FaceTime on the whole drum thing. And I said, in the meantime, I'm just going to go on master class and take um, a few drum lessons on there and into the meantime. Who does to- them on Masterclass? Is it like Dave Grohl or something? Like who's on there drumming? Oh, yeah. Well, no. What the hell is her name? The female drummer. That's who I did. I can't oh, even think gosh. of her name right I only now. think of like Meg White. I can't think of who the female drummer would be. No, there's oh, a black woman. What the hell is her name? Oh, I keep thinking of Prince's girl. No, no, no. Sheila E. That's who it was, Sheila E. So that's who I um, took the master class with, and it was amazing. And so um, I'm glad I live on five acres plus. So when I'm banging, no one, you know, banging on the drums. Let's just make that I clear. I mean, kind of both. You did say that you were having a lot of sex during the pandemic. So no one hears a peep. But anyway, yes, it was it was really amazing. And then my husband, he got further into his guitar. Um, He bought like tons of guitars and just I mean, what else do you do during a pandemic? And then we started to restore and redo things around the house. And I mean, it was just one of those things and got into gardening. So, I mean, it just can go on and on and on. Um, Okay, so the book, let's get back to the book, because, yeah, how do you really sum up your life into these chapters. How did you kind of figure out how you wanted to block the book out and tell these stories, what was going to make the cut, what was going to be left on the editing room floor? There's so much to you. The book is written um, about my life. It's not about anybody else. It's not about five seconds of pleasure by throwing anybody under the bus or anything like that. I don't think that is, I mean, why? Why do that? But the book was designed... um, and working with Greg Oliver out of ECW Press on the book. And I, I'm all about, you know, fact checking this whole project, because after 40 years of entertainment, how do you remember exact uh, dates and times and whatnot? And so thank God Greg Oliver is a fact checker. Like, oh, my God. So, you know, he was calling people, checking up history, making sure ever, all these events happened or this has happened here or this was right. So. Because what was a big concern of mine for this book is that people are going to go through it and you're going to they're going to be like, 
that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, she's lying. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just take care of that before any of that crap happens. So um, there might be a misspelled word that we didn't catch or the editor that, you know, we're only human. I don't know. I, as far as I saw, I didn't see any. I'll tell you, nothing's more annoying, though, than having the book go to press and you're like, fuck, this word spelled wrong. <laughs> that happened to me. I was like, I did that with my book when I I like put, I think like I, I omitted part of a recipe or some kind of ingredient. And I was like, it's out there now. It's done. I understand. And then when, it, when they say, okay, this is your, okay, you have, this is your second to last chance to make any changes. But when you do, it only can be one or two words. And you only have so much to put in or take out because it'll screw up the whole page. And then I'm like, okay, you needed to take this out. No, this needed to go in. And you're only praying to God, like, I hope it all got in or this was taken out. But I did, Nate, to tell you the truth, I changed some names. And um, only because uh, people change in life. And um, when they when I say change, you know, sometimes it's for the better. Sometimes it's not. But, you know, who am I to here to judge? Right. But also they also have a new life. They have they may have siblings or they may have other things going in their life, which is completely innocent to their past. So um, but I mean, I can't help if they were a dick in the past either. But anyway, sure, yeah, the book isn't about you know, pointing out people's, you know, bad habits or how bad they were. It was, uh, it was a life. It was a life experience. It was my story and the things I had to do and go through and adversities to, and endure and the things that I chose to overcome. You had to um, go through the process to go through and hit failure and then to overcome failure and to me, failure is not really a destination. It's only a blueprint. I would like to kind of clarify here because I feel like people that are listening to this might assume that you're just talking in uh, in terms of the wrestling world, of changing names and things that have happened, whatever. But that's not what this book necessarily is all about. Of course, there's wrestling in there. But you really delve into a lot of who you are in your childhood, how you grew up, the things that you have been through. Is that kind of more what you're referencing than just the wrestling world? No, I mean, a little bit of everything. I mean, monster trucks and wrestling, uh, personal life. Um, I tell stories um, with her and them or him with, without mentioning names, just for that reason. You know, when you get two calls saying that, hey, if you mention my name, I'm going to sue your ass. Did you have that? That happened? People called you and like warned you, don't don't say my name. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I would love to know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know that you have like fucked up when you need to make the first call to go, don't you don't run my name through the mud. If that's your first instinct, you fucked up. Exactly. And that right there just I mean, it just validated everything. And I'm like, God, I just want to do it just because. But again, this does not scare me. You should be scared for your own life. But it wasn't about that. Going through things like that. Um, you realize what you've went through, right? I, I'm not perfect. I've made bad choices in my life, but you overcome that um, and, and you move forward. So would I be here to judge anybody right now unless something like that is happening in your life? Then I feel that you should take care of it personally. Um, and I'm a big stickler and, you know, not putting so much personal crap out on 
social media. Like, I, I don't ever believe in this thing is like when I break up with a guy or something, I, I need to make an announcement. I know we've really gotten into this whole oversharing situation. It's funny. I can feel myself pulling back a lot of like, if I just go to post something random, I'm like, oh, who cares? Why am I posting this? No one cares about this. I don't care about this. But we have this need to overshare every little aspect of everything we're doing. It is kind of nice to just not do that sometimes. It is. I, I'm glad I have someone do my social media, but, but I okay everything. And I still think that, you know, once a day is too much. I'd like to post something once every three days, you know? Oh, I, that's me. I'll look at it and go, oh, shit, I've not posted anything in a minute. Here's my, here's a selfie. I don't know. Like, I can totally check out sometimes too. Um, okay, so going through all of these different moments, these different tentpole moments in your life and putting them into the book, as you're going through all these and then finishing the book, how did you feel about yourself afterwards doing this? Did you sort of just be able to check back in with yourself and go, shit, look at what I've done. Look at this life that I've lived. Look at these things that I've overcome. Did you have a little bit more appreciation for yourself once you kind of acknowledged all of these things again and kind of relived it? My husband will tell you, like, I am the worst. Like, I have been. I know this is going to sound very strange, but self-deprecating has been my worst. And when we do that, it's just, it, it says what you say about yourself. And so in the last, you know, I'm going to say maybe the last five, seven years, I've, I've worked really hard on not doing that. And it's really changed my outlook and who I am and how I perceive things or how I choose people around me or the, you know, conversations, because I'm at an age, nay, that I can do and say and choose who I want and what I want to do, you know, and thank God for financially that I've, I'm able to do that. It's, you know, called having legs to stand on, but it always never has been like that. It's been very rough. My whole careers, both of them, you know, even starting over in monster trucks, it was like going back in the eighties and reestablishing everything, working your way, getting women the credit, you know, that they are due. And it's just like, wow, 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 wow. It's so cool to me to think of like what you were doing for women in professional wrestling so early on. And I know you've always been given your flowers for what you've done for women's wrestling, but I feel like you kind of get it even more so now because the business has changed so much and wrestling has changed. It's kind of like, oh shit, like these women were actually putting on matches like this before the, you know, the, the divas era and no shade to, to that at all. But you guys were putting on those matches. You guys were in Japan putting on these amazing matches, what you and Bull Nakano especially were able to do. But I think you guys just get so much more appreciation now for that. So for you to have lived through that part of wrestling and the different territories, the different promotions, et cetera, et cetera, then go into Monster Truck and then do those battles again. Oh, my God. Like... Are you exhausted for just being this like torchbearer for women like constantly? You know what it did is it it seasoned me, wrestling seasoned me for what I needed to and what I was ready to step into monster truck. So I was really gung-ho and excited to do that because I knew exactly what to do. I knew what I was up against. I knew how to rattle the cage per se. I knew how men thought. I knew how they ate. I knew how they you know, everything about them. So I knew how they worked. And so the manipulation that they played, I had a counter move to that. And so when they put me up on the scene, they weren't ready. 
And especially when I won two championships in the Monster Jam, you know, world finals twice, the blowback was, and especially coming from an executives was now what the hell are we going to do? A woman won. That's exactly what one of them said. And I was like, are you kidding me? Whoa. And so going back to what you said as well, Nay, is that, yes, there is more recognition to women of my era, which I call the lost era. It really is the lost era. Does that kind of keep a bit of a chip on your shoulder? Believe me, I, I was jaded uh, a long time in pro wrestling. I, I was good. I was good. at. I was, you know, I was good to pro wrestling. Pro wrestling wasn't good to me. It was because of that. So you had your June buyers, you had your moolahs and your maize, you know, and that wonderful, great start of women, you know, 60 years, 70 years, whatever ago. But if it wasn't for those women, um, there wouldn't have been the next era, which was a little jump of your Wendy Richters, your Sherry Martells, um, you know, your Jumping Bomb Angels and your Glamour Girls. Right. And you had that whole wonderful thing when Wendy Richter was in the first WrestleMania. My God. Right. And then you had a little bit of a stint on the second and third, maybe. And then really, we didn't have a woman's wrestling WrestleMania match until WrestleMania 10, which was mine against Leilani Kai. And so our social media back then was relied on people that wrote for the magazines and they were writing their story, how they thought they would put our interviews in their voice, which we never basically said. So we had no control. So when I look back, like I have a lot of old magazines from the 80s and stuff from interviews that allegedly that I gave, you know, and it's like, I never said any of that crap. You know what I mean? So it it was, it was, I, I used to call them pen pushers that, you know, that was our social media and we relied on that. And so fast forward, when you said, given your flowers, thank God for social media. So People are able to go back in history and look at what everything that was there um, and the people that were there before. And um, for WWE to have one active person from before the Attitude Era, as I always say, there's there's always everything we see from the Attitude Era forward, which is fantastic. Right. And if we keep pushing that, then that's all they know. But if we educate something a little bit before, then they're going to want to do some history, want to do some, you know, you know, kick it up and knowledge themselves and what was. So I'm I'm thankful for what I do and have with WWE um, intermittently that they when they do give you a call, because I feel that it's not just helping me. It helped represents the women before the Attitude Era. And I see that as a whole now. And I was, man, I had to step out of wrestling in 2001 when I retired. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm out of this shit show. I didn't like the way the direction where women was going. And I hated how they were writing women, even in WCW at that time. And I didn't want to do bra and panties. I didn't want to do barbecue matches and tear off your nightgown. And kudos to the women that stuck it out during the Attitude Era because, hell, they didn't have another choice, right? So you had to do what you had to do. It was their contract. But, you know, again, we have choices. You can say yes and you can say no. I think we all just assume that that is what those women wanted to do. And I'm sure that, no, that's not what the case is. Just kind of like, listen, it's a paycheck. I got bills to pay and it's a little bit of TV time. Get a little bit of notoriety doing X, Y, and Z. And uh, and then, you know, you there you go. Off to the races you are. But yeah, it's not necessarily the, that's what I'm signing up for. 
But then again, maybe there was some that wanted that, that, you know, and that's I'm not going to put put them down either. But if that was their choice, that was their choice. But there was a lot of women there that loved wrestling and that were damn good at it, that were thrown into the mix. So come 2001 and WCW was about 98, 99, and I knew my contract was coming to an end and I just gave them my notice. I said, I'm done. I'm out of here. And then, of course, I had a friend over there in WWE that said, hey, I Vince may be buying WCW. And I'm like, I'm out, man. I'm no, because if fight gets rolled over, I trademark Medusa over 40 years ago. And I'm like, that name ain't being run. No, I'm keeping that name and I'm out. And that's exactly what I did. And then I got a call probably around 99 from Mike Weber. He worked for WCW. Now he's the COO of Fight TV. And uh, he said, Deuce, what are you doing? I'm like, Mike, how the hell are you? And I'm like, I'm out of this shit show, man. I'm going to retire. I'm going to go into gardening. I'm going to ride my Harley. I'm, I'm out. And he's like, Deuce, you're a gearhead. You ride Harleys, dirt bikes. Uh, do you want to drive a monster truck? And I'm like, what the hell is a monster truck? <laughs> so I'm like, I've never even heard of one. Like, I know you mean I'm those big trucks and the mutter things. He's like, yeah, that he goes. We have no women drivers. We don't have, we need, we need women in the stands. Deuce, you're crazy. Do you think you want to test drive one? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then all of a sudden they flew me out to Kill Devil Hills and I test drove with the legendary Dennis Anderson of Gravedigger and history was made. And that just seems like it's, I mean, obviously it, it was and is such a natural fit for you to just go, okay, still performing now in this avenue, still being that like that paver, as you said, uh, to, to get more women in there. Have more women, has that grown in Monster Truck? So there must be, there. And of course, there's like 100 drivers and probably 15, 20 women drivers. So there's still that, but Big, big difference. I mean, I was the only driver for, you know, probably five years and then finally getting another woman in there, you know, and it's just a slowly, you know, a slow process. And oh, my gosh, just see what has happened and, and transpired from there. And the evolution of that is incredible. How different was like the day to day in Monster Truck kind of building that whole women's evolution in Monster Truck versus what it was like in those not even just the early days in, in pro wrestling, essentially your entire career in pro wrestling. How, what was sort of the parallels between the two in terms of, of being like that first woman? Um, when I first started, I knew I had to, I, I did my due diligence knowing what I had to do. Thank God I knew about the entertainment business and what I, you know, uh, the needs for a woman, right? And what they would want to see. Now I'm highly competitive. I mean, I'm so competitive that the husband and I, it gets serious around here during air hockey. Like it gets bloody. John and I, I will kick his ass at air hockey every damn time. Me too. We should have, we'll we'll have Have a little tournament. Yeah. Yes. Oh my (laughs) God. I love it. So air hockey is my jam, man. I love it. And he gets so mad. By the time you can tell when we can walk around the house, we're bloody and they're like, yep, yep, yep. Jonathan's been at it again. (laughs) Air hockey. But anyway, I'm very highly competitive. So I knew when I stepped into monster drugs, like this is my jam. Man. This is awesome because pro wrestling's entertainment, right? With monster trucks, I'm like, God, this is it. I get to get back into competition and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the truck alone was what? Around $300,000. You have your whole semi and trailer. It's probably another 250000 And then you have to have another truck in back of the trailer. So it's another 300000 
So it's almost $2 million a year to run one of these. So I knew what I needed to do. So I sat down, did my diligence and said, what would a little girl want to do to become a monster truck driver? So I made it about the gimmicks. So I created this thing called Queen of Carnage. So it started off with the red, white, and blue, came out to Lenny Kravitz, you know, American woman. (laughs) It was so powerful, right? And then in the red, white, and blue, and Medusa, and made in the USA, and um, did that scheme for a while. And then I I turned it over and did a whole pink gimmick. And that's when I brought out the tiaras and I'd wear a tutu over my fire suit during our signings and the, you know, during our pit party. And then all of a sudden it caught on and the little girls, I'd come out and I would give a free tiara to little girls. And later it became for little girls and boys and they would all wear their Bret Hart sunglasses get it you get the tiara yeah oh my gosh it was so amazing and they would wait in line for like three hours it was just it was so good so I knew what to do as far as marketing there but then I had to have a catchphrase queen of carnage it was great and then that's how I got my nickname because I always crashed and it was so expensive but it was queen of carnage known and um it stuck. It was just one of those things that, again, it worked. And all of a sudden, little girls are like, I want to be just like you. And I want to be a monster truck driver. And so, nay, there is a beautiful story about a little girl. It just, oh, warms my heart. One time I was going through all of my emails. It was a fan mail email address. And there was this little girl. I can't tell you everything. It's in the book, guys. You got to check it out. And how this little girl was at one of our shows. She was like, I don't know, 12 at the time or something. And she's like, I want to be just like you. I want to become a monster truck driver. How do I do? You know, what do I need to do? And I said, you know what? This is what you need to do. It's never been done. Do this and you're going to be double than what I am. And by the way, I'll see you at the green light. And you're going to have to read the story. Oh, Oh, it is so incredible. So just to know that I've you know, changed or helped people's lives um, is incredible. You know, in pro wrestling and monster trucks, we really capture people's lives more than we know. Sometimes they set aside everything as far as it's financial or if it's planning their trips, or maybe it's just at home watching SmackDown or Raw. And it's a family gathering and it makes people come together and in more ways than we even realize because we're just on the back end and we're always hustle bustle and we're running to get to TV or we got to do this, we got to do that. We're working out, we're trying to make right and we're trying to put on social media. But if we just breathe and just realize, like, remember where we were at and what people are really going through and um, what it does for people, it's pretty remarkable. Well, 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 I finally got the Ocho, Chris Jericho, here on my podcast. He's been ducking and dodging, coming on the show for some time, um, and I finally have lured him on. So, Chris, thanks for coming to hang out for a little bit. Well, you kind of pulled some uh, chicanery on me. I thought this was Aubrey's <laughs> podcast, the, uh, other, the Unrestricted, so... <laughs> I couldn't, I can't, it's hard for me to tell the difference between you guys. You know, one, one broad's the same as the next. <laughs> Shut up. In the biz. <laughs> <That's> stupid. <laughs> no, it's great. I'm excited. Um, before I talk to you about a bunch of wrestling things and about your career and whatnot, you have a kid that's out of the house. Is that messing you up? Not really. So my son Ash is 19 now and he, um, he goes to FAU, which is in Boca, which is about a four hour drive okay, from here. Okay, so not too far. 
not too far. And he's been gone since September and here we are now in February. So yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit strange, but you'll know this too, as your kid, kid, kids get older, the biggest kind of um, uh, thing that, that, that you miss is, is like, there's, there was always, and there still is now, but always so many kids in my house. Dude, you have a full house. Oh my God. I didn't realize how full your house was until you were doing the stuff with Matt Hardy and you guys had the drone stuff and whatnot and you had like your dogs and shit all in the shots. I was like, oh my God, you like, you're at capacity. Yeah. And then during lockdown, like when, when things, you know, for us, we were always working. I mean, you weren't quite here in AW yet, but you know that John was. So we knew right away that when you leave your house, your head doesn't explode and like things are not that crazy. I mean, it could be so, but, but I had all the kids come over. Like if you want something to do, kids don't want to hang out with their parents when they're 15, 16, 17. So I literally had like 30 kids in my house and I did always before lockdown and I did after lockdown too. So the biggest thing that my son has gone now is that all of his friends aren't still hanging out, but yeah, you, you miss your kids, but they, they turn into adults. Like, you know, Remember when you were 18, 19? I don't want my kid to turn into an adult. <laughs> I know, but remember, Renee, when you when we were 19, did you hang out with your parents? Well, yeah, I had a good relationship, but it was like, hey, dad, what do you want to do on a Friday night? It's like, fuck, I'm going out with my friends and I'll see you later, right? So you get kind of used to that too. I, I'll look forward to that. I, I'll, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I need to. It's a good thing because like my kids are all good kids, they're very respectful, and I like having them have their friends over. And you know, my daughters are not the age of those boys coming over all the time, and they're all cool. Wait, how are you as like dad when like your girls bring boys home? How like how how does that work? At first, I was kind of an asshole until my daughter said, "Like, what are you doing? Like, stop! This is stupid." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, I'm not, they got to be scared." It's like they are—they're respectful kids. They're all cool. And I'm like, oh, "Okay." Are you cool, Dad? I think so. You know, I, I here's where here here's where I became really cool. So my kids don't really have a lot of um, interest in wrestling. None of them do. Like they watch and stuff, but they really are interested in the fact that like, oh, Snoop Dogg follows you on Instagram, or you know Shaq, or you know Giannis, you know, um, uh, and then the crews they watch the Fozzie gigs and they you know they see all that sort of side of it. And they think that's really cool. So so I'm always a cool dad because I'm just cool in general. But now that I actually have these shows and, you know, I'm on The Masked Singer and I'm on the Dave Portnoy One Bite Pizza Challenge on Barstool or the Hot Wings Challenge, like that stuff, those, the kids nowadays, they're into that sort of thing. So the fact that I've done all those makes me like, oh my gosh, your dad did, you know, your dad knows Steve-O, like, oh my gosh, like that sort of thing makes me a cool dad. Adding to being the cool dad, what exactly is happening? What deal have you made with the devil? What fountain of youth are you drinking from? What is happening in the world of Chris Jericho that you look as good as you do? You're moving as good as you do. You're as busy as ever. How the fuck did you ever think that you would be going at the pace that you're going at right now? I don't know. Cause I, I like, it's weird for me. Like, you know, how old are you, Chris? I'm like 52, like 52, like what? So I don't ever think that way. I've never once in my life, nor will I ever say, Oh man, I'm getting old or I'm too old for this. Like never. Once you start thinking that I would venture to say that Mick Jagger has never once in his life went, oh, I'm too old for that. You know, like maybe I'm over right now or I, I, I don't, you know, I have no interest in going to like a Vegas club anymore. Like I just don't like that type of vibe, but, I would never go because, oh, I feel too old. I never felt that way. 
Another big thing too is, is December of last year, I had a pulmonary embolism, which are blood clots in your lungs. Right. And we were in London on tour with Fozzie. We were in England. So I was basically stuck there for like 10 days. Cause you can't fly when you have blood clots and stuff. And so after that, like I had, like, a, that was kind of a big kind of a, like a, like a wake up call. So I lost 30 pounds and I got everything in order as far as heart, lungs, you know, all the stuff you have to do. And I have a clean bill of health at this point. And so I, I took that to heart, you know what I mean? So, and people said, well, you just stop drinking. Like, no, I still drink. I just in moderation, you know, and just watch what I'm eating and just all of that sort of thing. So I think that's, that was a real, like, if you look at me like a, a year and a half ago to now, I look like a different guy because I was 30 pounds heavier. But during the lockdown, I mean, fuck, man. All we used to do is just drink and eat and, and not do anything. You don't even realize it. It's like, oh, I still got abs. Oh, sure, you got these abs, but then you got flab everywhere else. And you just don't realize that. So that was a really kind of a good, it was a good wake-up call to where, you know, you could die. People die from pulmonary embolisms. How scary to be that far away from home and have something of that magnitude happen. Like, that's scary as all hell. Your family must have freaked. Yeah, it was really scary. And the worst part was this was still kind of at the end of COVID. So there was still, you know, testing for this and like, and, and my oxygen level was so low because of, of the clots that they're like, if it goes any lower, you have to go on the ventilator. And of course, that was the number one thing that all of us were like, no fucking ventilator. And the closest that I got was they had to put a, I can't remember, a cannula, the, the, the oxygen here, because the oxygen has to come up. That's something that like, you learn during COVID. One of the things why people had to go on ventilators is your oxygen percentage in your blood should be about 98, 99. It should be 100, but you know, 98, 99 is fine. I was down at around 92. If you get lower than 90, right to the ventilator. And to me, that was like, like you're thinking death sentence, right? So I didn't, I never put on the gown that they give you and I refused to get in a wheelchair for any tests that I had to do. Cause I was like, no, that's one step closer to never getting out. That's actually like probably a good mindset. Just like you were fighting it from the get go. I am not doing any, like even from like the gown. Yeah. I know that I have clots. Like we, we got it. Give me the, the, the freaking, uh, the eloquist, which is called, but the, and the first one they give you is a giant needle about this big and they stick it right in your thigh and just like, whack. It's just, it's like Pulp Fiction. When he gives uh, uh, Uma Thurman the, the adrenaline, I was like, I need the eloquence. They said I need blood thinners. They did all the tests. Okay, now you get your eloquence. I'm like, thank. Oh, no, no. Black. Ah! Because they need to get it in there right away. And and thankfully, the, the, the blood thinners worked. So I responded really well. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly healthy guy. And, and there's no reason to get blood clots. It's not like, oh, were you eating bad or, or were you, you know, whatever. They just, they, they were just there. How did you know, like, what kind of tipped you off to knowing that you needed to get to the hospital? We were uh, on tour with Fozzie and the first couple gigs were fine. And then the, the fourth or fifth gig, I, I started losing my breath on stage to where I couldn't catch my breath and I couldn't sing because I couldn't catch my breath. I've never had that problem. It got to the point where I called a, a doctor friend of mine in the States and she said, you might have blood clots. So when you get back, get it checked out. Uh, I didn't make it to when I got back because the last gig before I found out, I, I literally felt the whole walls closing in on me to where I was like, I got freaked out. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to run off. I almost ran off the stage and ran to the crowd at the front door. 
So thankfully uh, we had a day off in London to do press and uh, we know, obviously we've been there many times. So we know that rock docs, rock doctors, they come to you. And the guy came to, to, to me uh, at the hotel that we were at, the London Hard Rock, and he took some blood tests and he said, okay, um, we're going to analyze these. And in about three hours, I want you to go for a heart scan. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't play another show until we find this out. And within that three hours, they called me and said, you got blood clots. You got to go right to the hospital. I remember I saw you it was in Nashville. Like I just came with John. I wasn't working for the company yet. And I saw you and I was like, oh my God, look at Chris. Like you just looked like a million fucking bucks. Um, but I mean, yes, aesthetically looking good, but being able to like move good and feel good. Um, I mean, shit, it's very impressive to just like watch what you do in the matches that you're having at the level that you're having them Uh, on the mental side of things. How do you keep yourself engaged? Do you ever have moments where you sort of mentally check out a little bit like you've been doing it for so long and obviously you were the king of reinventing himself. But what is that process like for you in terms of like, is there a lull where you go, I'm getting a little bored now? What am I going to do? Like, how does that process work for you? Like I was, I, I was kind of mentally out of WWE. I, I just, I didn't really want to be there anymore. And so I went to Japan a couple of times. I saw you there as a matter of fact, when John was starting to go there and it really kind of reinvigorated my love of wrestling and the creative process because WWE is amazing, but there's a certain way they do things as you know, and you fall into the system. Once you get kind of traded from, you know, the chiefs and go play for the Eagles, there's a different coach and a different system. And that's what Tony Khan's vision was very much the almost like New Japan. So that's why I, I wanted to go to AEW because I didn't want to just be in WWE and just be there for the sake of being there. I wanted to try and make a difference in, in, in wrestling and change the course of wrestling history, which we did. So that kind of reinvigorated my whole love and fire and passion for wrestling. And now that we're three, you know, three and a half years in, I have a lot of responsibilities in AEW and it's not just in the ring. It's a lot out of the ring, especially over yeah, the last- What are some of the other hats that you're wearing? Because you are very busy doing things outside of being Chris Jericho in the ring. Well, I think just being Chris Jericho backstage, like I have the most experience out of anybody in the company with the exception of Dustin Rhodes, but also because I came in uh, as kind of the flagship guy. Like when AEW first started, it was on my back for the first few months. We knew this. How many stars can we make? Let's bring in Mox. But the Cody wasn't as big as he was. No one really knew who Kenny and the Bucks were. Hangman Page, Darby Allen, Jungle Boy. Those are some of the guys I can recall working with right out of the gate. Just like we have to get more plate spinning here. So backstage, there's a lot of advice given out, a lot of uh, listening, a lot of bartender listening. You know, I've got a problem with this. I've got a problem with that. There's a lot of working closely with Tony Khan, a lot of locker room leading you know, especially over the last six months or so when we kind of had to take the reins back when there was a lot of bad publicity and a lot of uncertainty in the dressing room. As a matter of fact, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a man uh, and, and Danielson and myself kind of like, we have to really take charge here because we're going to lose the dressing room. And if you lose the dressing room, you're fucked. So there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. Um, ba- basically everything, you know, I, I think it's kind of almost like a real general Tony Khan's probably got a lot of right-hand men, but I think I'm probably one of them. Uh, and also, too, kind of just helping out the locker room. And, and I produce probably half the backstage promos that you see, just trying to help as much as I can. How have you noticed things have changed 
in the last six months or so. I mean, you talk about, you know, some of the things that did happen and how you guys had to kind of take the reins back. How have you seen things change in the last six months uh, for for AEW and for yourself? You know, that, that's that's a big question. And, and um, to start giving that answer, one thing I always point out to a lot of people in the business, in the company and outside is we're only three years old, right? And I knew it was going to be like this from the moment we started, like the whole concept of EVPs and kind of that whole thing. I knew that it wouldn't really mean anything because it's one boss, it's one vision, and we have to follow that vision. I worked for Vince for 20 years, and one of the reasons why I was able to to, to get uh, as far as I did and become as big as I did because I understood you have to do what your boss wants. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you think your stuff is better. Uh, in our company, there was a lot of that kind of resistance because there was a lot of guys that didn't work in the big corporate system. doesn't matter what you think. Our boss is is the boss, and we have to do our best to help him with that vision. So I think there's a lot more cohesiveness from that side of things. I think the infrastructure is getting bigger. Uh, you know, bringing in pros, yourself included, as far as like, okay, uh, let's bring in somebody who knows more about PR. Let's bring in someone who's more about, you know, uh, directing the show someone who knows more about backstage interviews, someone who knows more about producing backstage interviews, about writing storylines that the boss will like. I just had a meeting this morning about a couple storylines that I'm, I'm working on with a few guys. And it's like, I, and not even for me, for other people, I need to pitch them to Tony because I know how he thinks and I know what he wants. So it doesn't matter what this guy, this guy, this guy wants. It's like, let's take all these ideas and write it to pitch it to where he will either say yes or no. You know, you, you understand this because you've been around a long time. You gotta, you gotta speak the language of your of the, of the people that are in charge. You know, there's a lot of that sort of stuff too. How long does it take you to like figure something like that out? Because everybody is very different. I mean, you talked about working for Vince for 20 years to working for Tony Khan to like you then have to be pretty malleable in those situations to understand like how do I convey what I'm trying to do to this person? I mean, how much do you think about that in terms of like what those conversations look like and how those pitches go? Is there like the time of day you've got a pitch or like when they've eaten a good meal, those kinds of things? Vince was like, you had to make sure that he had eaten because if he, if Vince was hungry, he wouldn't pay attention to what you were saying. All I could think about was his food. Right. And it's the same with Tony. There's timing things. I mean, everyone wants to talk to Tony at TV. It's the worst time. You can't talk to him. I'll talk to Tony for five minutes, just about what we've got going on tonight, which maybe could lead to something next week and next week. But I know like if I really want to talk to him, I have to get on the phone with him. Now, once again, he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got Fulham soccer uh which is a huge money business he's got the jacksonville jaguars which is a huge money business and he's got a lot of other things as well but those are basically he runs three giant companies along with his dad and 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 other people but he's really good at delegating responsibility to guys he trusts but he doesn't trust a lot of people and that 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 makes perfect sense right so yeah, you just have to kind of try and get them. And the thing with Tony that I learned is that he, when he's ready to talk, he'll talk your ear off. But you can't force him to talk if he's – and I'm the same. Like, hey, man, can we talk today? It's like, ah, I can't really talk today or I don't really have – I got so much stuff to do in this thing. Let's talk tomorrow about that thing. And you just have to realize that. So that's another thing about Tony is that that he, he's really smart and he's super receptive to all ideas. But you have to catch him at the right time and you just have to kind of figure out when that may or may not be. 
So you talk about AEW being around for three and a half years, still very much so, you know, in its infancy. It's a company that's figuring itself out. It is growing at like such an astronomical rate. It's such a cool thing to be a part of. And then you look at the locker room and it's a pretty young locker room. What are some of the things that you've been able to learn from those guys and girls? I mean, somebody has been around the business and worked for many different promotions, worked with so many different talented people. What kind of little nuggets are you picking up from this next generation? Well, when I came back to WWE in 15 and 16 is when I started working with Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns and um, Seth Rollins. Like those are the guys I worked with. And that was by design because I didn't want to be coming back just to work with guys from my generation, so to speak, because we've seen that already. I liked working with the younger guys, which gives them a rub to work with a guy with my experience, but gives me a rub to be working with, with younger guys that have a different style of wrestling in a lot of ways. I remember the first time Seth Rollins said, I'm going to hit you with three topes in a row. In my mind, I was like, one, you hit one tope. That's how that you build up to it. But then I realized, well, that's, that's not enough anymore. You know, um, it's like when I first came to AEW and saw Orange Cassidy, I thought, this is stupid. This gimmick sucks. It's stupid. And then I was like, pull your head out of your ass. The guy's super over. What is it about him that works? And then I realized it's so unique and he's, he he's knows exactly what he's doing with this character. I'm like, oh, okay. I understand. So I learned about how not to stay relevant, but you want to stay in the mix and I remember when I was in WCW, which was, you know, a, a great learning experience, but Hogan was always working with Piper and Flair and, and staying in Lex. And those guys never really worked with guys like Eddie or Jericho or Benoit or Mysterio or that type of guys. And I thought, like, how cool would it be? Like, I was super hot as a heel. You could put me in there with Sting as a babyface and we could really tear it up. Or you could put Eddie as a heel with a, with a babyface Hogan, for example. And so I always kind of wanted to keep that mindset. So I, I like working with the younger guys and there's no reason for me, like, you know, you, there's no reason to see Chris Jericho versus Matt Hardy. We've seen it before. We've seen Chris Jericho versus Christian. I'd rather see Jericho versus, you know, versus Ricky Starks or Jericho versus Eddie Kingston or Jericho versus Orange Cassidy or whoever it is, you know, Jericho and MJF being a, a team and then working against each other. That's fresh. It's exciting. And it benefits both guys. So to go to the other side of that, uh, to, to a degree, bringing back Lionheart Chris Jericho, what all went in to bringing back this version of Chris Jericho? Mentally, what did you have to do to kind of like step back into that between getting the music, the gear? Did you go back and watch old tape? Like what all happened with, with bringing back Lionheart? That was actually when I was working once again with with one of my favorite opponents, not just saying that because you're here, but but Moxley. I mean, once again, during the summer when there was another (laughs) breakdown, I feel that Mox and I, and to an extent, Brian Danison, but at that time, it was like basically Mox and I really kind of kept the lights on and kept cool, you know, kept the plate spinning, but in, in the best possible way. So I think we did Lionheart. That was actually John's idea. Because he he said, like, you know, we're coming up to this match. And I had just done a bunch of real gimmick matches with Eddie Kingston, like a barbed wire match. And we had just done the Anarchy in the Arena, which Mox and I were involved in. And we had done the Blood and Guts, which we were both involved in. So it's like, how many more gimmick matches can we do? Like, I said, like, well, let's just pull it back and, and, and just do like a wrestling, like a match. And he liked that idea. And I remember, once again, I was in London at the hard rock, I was doing some spoken word shows over the summer 
And he called me or texted me about an idea he had of, of, of bringing back Lionheart because he was watching some ECW tapes or whatever it was. And I thought like, that's kind of a cool idea. Ask Tony and see what he says. Of course, Tony loves that because he loved ECW. And my last match in ECW, Tony Khan was in the crowd watching. What? He was like 14 or 15 and he had done really well in school or his parents had put him in some school that like some high IQ school that he didn't really want to go to. And his dad said, if you go to this school, I'll let you do anything you want. He, he wanted to come see Chris Jericho's last match in ECW, which was August of 96, I think it was. So he's there. You can see his me versus two cold Scorpio. And you can see Tony Khan. If you pause it, you can circle him and he's right there. Can you imagine Shad Khan in the ECW arena? Yeah. <laughs> did he have the mustache then too? I would hope so. Sure he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, you look like a, a heel in an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Tony was right into it and we thought, okay, well, let's try and get the, I had a, the theme I used was a song called uh, Electric Head Part Two by White Zombie. So we were able to track White Zombie down and find out how much it costs to get that song. So we did it. And and that was the idea. Let's say that I'm going to go back to my roots. I'm going to out-wrestle you. That sadistic bastard, Stu Hart, taught me everything about, you know, being violent. And you think you're violent. I'm way more violent. And w- w- that's kind of where it all started, you know. And it was um, it was a great match. It was, it was hilarious. I still have Scar right there, which I'll have forever. I think he, he scarred me here and here. And I think I got him Son of a bitch. or something like that. But oh, was, yeah. You did get him with a good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But right. we didn't even do it. So we're hitting each other's heads. Like, I, I hit my own head on the pole. Anyways, I just covered in blood. And to answer your question, I did go back and watch some of the old Mexico submissions to see kind of some stuff that no one else did and use the Bret Hart uh, figure four around the ring post, which there's a secret to that, where if you don't watch it, you, you won't do it. Everyone who tries it, if you don't know the secret, you won't do it. So yeah, I did watch a lot of tapes just to try and get back in the Lionheart mode. I went to a storage unit that I have about 20 minutes for that I have all my old gear and to see what I can Wait, find. Wait, what all's in this storage unit? How big is it? Is it like this organized, like Hall of Fame worthy kind of situation? It needs to be more organized. I need to hire somebody to go in there and, and, and document it all. Because right now I just got to like, you know, say like wrestling tights. And like, there's like 15 boxes that say wrestling tights. So I tried to find the old tights and the old kick pads and the old uh, vest, which I found, you know, and, and so I, I didn't wear the old tights because I was like, well, if Kiss was going to go on tour wearing their costumes from 76, they wouldn't use the exact same costumes. They'd get a modern version of it made. So that's kind of what I did. But it really worked out good. And it was a lot of fun to the point where Tony had us. I think I've done it three times since. But the funny thing was, though, um, when we went to Toronto the first time, uh, I did Lionheart versus Brian. and. It's the electric head, the white zombie music that plays. But because it was the first time we were in Toronto, people were mad because they wanted to sing Judas. So they just started singing Judas anyways. If you watch that match, the first five minutes of me and Brian fighting outside, they're singing Judas amongst themselves. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, so, I mean, you saying that, how important, I mean, that's such a basic kind of question, but just in terms of like entrance music being so important to like crowd involvement and how much people want, like, I mean, of course, your entrance is like the epitome of that. John's has a great one for that. Uh, But when you think of like that music and how important that is to really get somebody over and the fact that Tony is willing to go out there and pay for some of this music, what like it's huge for so many people. You know, always be closing, right? If you guys ever watch Glengarry Glenn Ross, that's a big kind of motto of mine, always be closing. So Judas became my theme song 
because I left WWE to go work uh, the Tokyo Dome against Kenny Omega with with Vince's blessing, by the way. I called him and asked him what he thought, if it was okay if I went and did it, because I was still working with WWE at the time. We've been trying to get Fozzie in Japan for fucking 20 years. Like, we've played around the world. We've got a huge fan base in Australia. The UK is huge for us. We've been all across Europe, but we've never been able to get to Japan. So I thought, well, since I'm headlining the Tokyo Dome, maybe if I use my own song, it'll help the band get more popular and we can get booked in Tokyo. So I thought, well, let's give Judas a try and see how it is. And when I used it, it was with the intention of hopefully some promoter will go, wow, people love this song. Let's book Fozzie. That didn't work. But what I did find out was that this is a great song to use from a, 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 a like a vibe standpoint, an attitude. Because keep in mind, I just come off of 20 years of using Break the Walls Down, which I couldn't use in Japan, nor would I want to. So I got to try something new. Well, So that really fit. So when, when AEW started, it's like, well, I got the song. Uh, it's already kind of worked in Japan. I know it'll work here. And it went good. But the the first time anybody ever started singing it was on the second Jericho cruise, which was also the famous where Mox was uh, amazing on karaoke. Shockingly good at Sweet Caroline. I'll give him that. Not as good at Bohemian Rhapsody. Who is good at Bohemian Rhapsody? Nobody's though, good. Nobody. Only Freddie. I wouldn't even try that song. No. There's no way. <laughs> So uh, but, but people started singing Judas on the cruise because that's the cruise where we had uh, a dynamite filmed on board the cruise. So it was one of the greatest professional moments as I'm walking to the ring for the company I helped start on the cruise that I invented with people singing the song that I sang. And so we kept it rolling. And then when the when the lockdown happened and we were resting in front of no people, I remember the first night we had 500 people back in, in, in the venue again in Daly's place. I was like, are they going to remember Judas? Are they going to sing? I hope they do. And they did. So like, okay, we got it. So from now on, that's become part of the show to when I started the Jericho Appreciation Society about a year ago, and I wanted to change Judas to kind of another different version of it or a different song. And Tony, Rich Ward, and I from Fozzie even worked on a remix of it. So it'd be less of a sing-along because I'm like, well, I'm a heel now. And Tony was like, I don't want to change it. Like, it's one of those organic moments. Heel or babyface, people, it's part of the show. They come to sing the song. You know how many times I've had to, like, curse you that I'm like, fuck, I'm singing Judas again. It's just like, it's always in my head. Yeah, and, like, people got, oh, he's a heel and he's coming out with everyone singing. It's like, okay, we have to understand the idea of wrestling is to get a reaction. And Tony had a great point, and I, I kind of felt it as soon as he said it. It's like, okay, so we, we don't play Judas one week that gets you some heel heat, and then what do you use for a song? We don't, we've cut off our nose to spite our face when all you want is organic reactions in wrestling, and we got that. So why fuck with it? Okay, I'm a heel. Whatever. Who cares? They sing the song, and then it's up to me to get people to boo me after, and it, it usually always works that way. Okay, you just mentioned being on the cruise ship, coming out to Judas, being in the band Fozzie, um, you've done spoken word. You've written, you know, New York Times bestselling books. You have your own podcast, Talk is Jericho. Like you have lived one hell of a life, like a very full life. Is there anything that you've not done that you still want to do? Because I mean, I feel like there's like this Jericho imagination station happening where it's like, let's make this cruise ship and we'll have wrestling on it. We'll have karaoke and we have all these things. Like what else is there to do? Like, are you just kind of throwing stuff against the wall at this point being like, what else do I really feel like doing? You've got so much shit going on. 
one of the things about being a great podcast host and, and, and you are a great interviewer is you're listening, right? You don't come with a list of questions. Anytime someone sits down with a list of questions, I know the interview is not going to go well because they're paying too much attention to the next question and not listening to what I'm saying. Okay. So why I, I, I said that is because I live my life the same way. I listen to what's going on and I follow kind of where we are. Like the cruise, I never sat down and said, I want to do a wrestling cruise. The cruise came up because Fozzie was invited onto the Kiss Cruise. Uh, And when we were doing the Kiss Cruise, I was like, I can do this. Like there's so much shit going on here. There's bands playing and there's comedians. But what if we put a ring in the middle right there and did matches? And then there's bands and and then I love paranormal. So what if I bring, like, you know what I mean? So that's kind of where that came from. So I don't really have a list of things like I want to do this, this, and this, and this. It's more along the lines of like, okay, so that happened, which is cool, which led to this opportunity, which is cool. Um, I I did a movie a a few years ago called Terrifier 2. This movie came out in the fall and it has Art the Clown's The Big Killer. And, And because it's so violent, it was in the theaters for one day. Somebody threw up. And that got around. This thing ended up being in theaters for uh, for a month and ended up making $10 million on a $200,000 budget. So because I was in this movie, because I was a big fan of Terrifier 1, now Terrifier 2, it's like now Jericho's like, oh, so I got an offer to do this horror movie. And I got, I was just reading uh, an offer, which as you know, in, in Hollywood, an offer means they're giving you the part for, for a Hallmark movie. I'm like, how the fuck am I in a Hallmark movie? What? Wait, can you forward them my information? Because I want to be at home. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. But, but, but once again, how did Terrifier 2 lead to the Hallmark movie? And it's because, well, he did pretty good. Because someone being... at Hallmark's a little twisted and they're into that dangerous shit. And they're like, let's get Jericho. Right. But the point is, it's like, why wouldn't I do it now? Because maybe that'll lead to something else. Like, I didn't like, I don't want to like, I want to be a Hollywood movie star. No, but I'd like acting and and if the hallmark channel calls well fuck why wouldn't i give it a try so all that stuff kind of you know it's kind of all in the mix you know so you and dj tanner could really shred it up Ah, she's in a lot trust me i looked i looked it up yeah (laughs) me and uh, candace cameron yeah um so so that's kind of the thing like i just kind of keep like the masked singer when that came up like i remember they asked me to do it a couple years ago i said this is the dumbest idea for a show ever like i don't want to do it and then they kept asking, kept asking. And then I finally watched. I was like, this is actually kind of fun. Like, sure, I'll give it a try. So that's kind of like where where my new projects come from. I don't have a list of things. I just kind of have like this pool of experience that I draw from that if something fun comes my way that I think I can do and do it at a, at a high level, well, then there's no reason not to do it. No matter how unorthodox or outside the box it seems, I like that sort of thing. I always want to think outside the box. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking Having this interview, having a hangout, it's all up on there. Um, And that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, We like filtering through them all, reading about them. Maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. 
We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions. <laughs> <laughs>